Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy, and we are here to talk about the Major League Baseball draft, which of course happened earlier this week, starting on Sunday, ending on Tuesday. A lot of impact on college baseball, obviously, as a result of the draft. So we're going to get into that, some of the winners and losers on the college side, some overall reaction. And since we last podcasted, uh, we have a couple coaching hires to, uh, to discuss, notably Arizona hiring former big league manager Chip Hale as their new coach. So we will get into that as well. First year, though, uh, we got to let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we, uh, we're here. It's mid-July. It was like the latest draft ever, but the draft is now over. Uh, that, was, uh, that was a fun time this week as uh, seeing everyone be able to, to get back into a bit of a fuller draft. They went 20 rounds this year after just going five last year, and, and they moved it to uh, to the All Star break, which uh, you know kind of added maybe a little bit to to the festivities surrounding the draft. At the very least, it got it out of the NCAA tournament for us. Yeah, it just it felt like a like I guess there's never really going to be an, an ideal time necessarily. Someone's always going to take issue with the timing of it, but this feels so much better. I mean, not only is it out of the way of the NCAA tournament. I thought that adding it to All-Star Weekend, I, I know it kind of stretched some of our staffers, you know, BA staffers, shouts to, to JJ Cooper and Carlos Colazzo, guys like that who were out there all the whole time, all All-Star Weekend into this week. It stretched them a little bit thin, I think, um, the timing of it with the Futures game and all that kind of stuff. But well, that was kind of a cool wrinkle. Uh, I also just kind of liked that it, we went straight from, okay, the CWS is over. Now we very quickly kind of pivot to watching the draft and seeing how that affects college baseball. And by the way, that kind of has little tangential things with transfers. And, you know, in the, ne- in the next few weeks, we'll get into transfers a little bit and kind of reading the full transfer market. But the draft obviously impacts that a little bit. Um, you know, we're still having some undrafted free agent signings here and there because I think that this is one of the impacts of, of the COVID situation that is now kind of coming back around a little bit is that you have all these guys who are these fourth and fifth year guys who, or more fourth year guys that could potentially have a fifth year, but they've already graduated. They're kind of fringy prospects. You know, the team's maybe trying to make a little bit of room on the roster. I think all those things are kind of combining to make it to where like, we're still, I think going to have a pretty robust non-drafted free agent market. So we're, we're tracking that, but it, 
So all that said, I, I think it was, the pace of this was kind of nice. It feels very congested right now because it feels like the CWS just got over five minutes ago and, and we're now into draft and summer ball is about halfway done now. So we're going to have to do that. And before you know it, players will be back on campus. But this certainly beats the alternative, which was when, you know, it was happening concurrently with the NCAA tournament for about a million different reasons. Yeah, the uh, I'm not a huge fan of the draft's timing here. It's just, I don't know. It's weird. You're right. There's no great time to do it. Any good idea I feel like I've ever had with regards to the draft timing, it still isn't like an amazing idea. I think my current favorite though is Memorial Day. Start the draft the night of Memorial Day. Uh, selection show at noon. Draft, you know, first round that night. Finish it the rest of the week. Um, and there, there are problems with that as well. But it, the the numbers came in the viewing numbers, and it was a a more viewed draft than usual. So that's a positive. And I guess if uh, if what the goal is, is to make it into more of a spectacle um, or an event, then they are meeting that goal. So that that is, uh, you know, the that that side of the draft, the actual like nuts and bolts of the draft were interesting. I think for a lot of people, maybe it was a little surprising if you really followed the draft process over the course of the spring. I, I guess it wasn't quite as surprising. Uh, like, I think that's also fair to say. Uh, it probably falls a little more on the surprising end, though, for, for a lot of viewers, as Henry Davis, catcher from Louisville, goes first overall. That was talked about at times, but there was never a consensus on who the number one overall pick would be. So that, I guess, can qualify as a surprise. And then seeing a guy like Kamar Rocker fall the way to 10, who had previously been talked about as a potential number one overall pick, maybe a bit of a surprise as well, but, you know, Rocker's slide wasn't something that just happened on draft night that had kind of happened over the course of the season. Um, and if the reported bonus of $6 million winds up being accurate, he's going to end up with one of the highest bonuses in the draft anyway. So at that point, uh, you know, that, that, you can take that for what it's worth, I guess. Um, but so that that's uh, th those were two of the more prominent college players. Jack Leiter, um, you know, joins Kamar Rocker as a top ten pick, giving Vanderbilt a pair that is especially rare to to see rotation mates go that early, and I think only further lends to my hypothesis that. Uh, that was not only the best one-two punch in college baseball this season, uh, but probably the best one-two punch in college baseball in the 21st century. Uh, you know, so just another data point on that. The they what they didn't have that that Rice, which probably would be the the other one, you know, pick a one-two in 2003, uh, was of course the national title, but uh, they did finish as as runners up if you'll recall those were some of the early draft college related headlines joe was was there anything else in the, the first round that, that stood out to you collegiately i think the you know i'm you and i are in an enviable position where um we are in conversation with whether it's it's carlos or, or whoever else um 
so we kind of see some of this stuff coming, but, you know, Rocker going as low as 10, which, you know, Carlos had said leading up to the draft, you know, we're consistently hearing between five and 10 on him. And, and I guess to a certain degree, Davis going one, when he had been telling us, yeah, there's really no, you know, everyone has Marcelo Meyer at the top of the boards, but really there is no, you know, lock number one here. Um, but the, I think to outsiders, those end up being a little bit, of a surprise. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, this was a conversation in baseball America slack. And I think there are a million reasons why the baseball draft does not get the buzz of the NFL draft or even the NBA draft. Uh, they're the, the chief reason is just that these guys are now going to go into the minor leagues and, and move to relative obscurity for everybody, except those who follow prospects very closely. But I do think one of the things that plays into this though, is that even if you're following these guys, like you might've watched a ton of rocker starts and you watch the CWS and you've seen rocker and lighter, but is not understanding how the baseball draft works and the machinations of the baseball draft where these pieces, these chess pieces kind of get moved around based on a lot of different factors, not just who is the best player in this slot. Now there are still teams that'll tell you that's all we're really focused on, but there are just a lot of games that get played in in the baseball draft in the early rounds and i think so you see stuff like that and you start to scratch your head is how did kumar rocker pardon me kamar rocker fall to number 10 and you and i might be able to answer that question in a, in a decent way but to someone who is just kind of watching it casually it just looks like everyone passed on him and they did in a literal sense but in other ways okay if he's asking for six million dollars that's a couple of excess million dollars that we can't spend elsewhere. And that stuff ends up mattering in the baseball draft. I just think for the average consumer, I think that's really, really complicated and hard to follow. And I think it's just a, a point of friction. That's always going to be a problem with, with the baseball draft. I mean, I guess I personally don't think it's that big of a deal. Like I think people are capable of understanding that. I, I, I think that baseball really just suffers from the fact that, these guys are going to go into the minor. Like why is Spencer Torkelson still staying in the minor leagues? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't really fully understand. And I mean, I do understand, but I, I think that's the really just the, the problem there. And the rest of it is, can be explained. Like, look, people understand the NBA salary cap. NBA fans understand the salary cap. And that is so much more complicated than the baseball draft. So I, I feel like that's a, that that is a hill that people are willing to climb, uh, you know, to to understand some weird financial uh, implications that that exist in in whatever their their shows and sport is, uh, if they think it really matters. And I just think baseball has done a poor job of marketing its draft. And then also, you know, you go into it, and, and a lot of that was on purpose for like the first forty years of the draft. They didn't want it marketed; they wanted it right. secret. Um, so they're also starting from a, po a point where 40 years ago, the NFL, ESPN went to the NFL and was like, let's, let's put this on TV. And the NFL was like, wait, why do you want to do that? Not don't do that. It was just like, we don't understand what you're, what you see here. Uh, but ESPN saw something and the NFL went along with it. Whereas around the same time, baseball was like, how do we lock down this draft even tighter and make mm -hmm. it even harder for people to, to access what it is we're doing here and 40 years on you know you see the fruits of espn and the nfl's labor in making the draft a big deal and 40 years on in baseball you see like oh at some point baseball understood that partially because of baseball america 
uh, that we couldn't keep it a secret anymore. And like, that's a real thing. That's not me like tooting BA's horn that Baseball America was kind of instrumental in forcing MLB to acknowledge draft results in a more public way. Uh, they later though realize, oh, other drafts are popular. Like why isn't our draft popular? So now they're just playing catch up. And so I, I, I understand the argument that, that's made about the intricacies of the finances here. But I, again, I, I just, people bother to understand the NBA salary cap, the NFL salary cap, you know, all sorts of weird terminology revolving around those two things that I don't fully, like, I certainly don't understand the NBA salary cap. Um, but I, I know a lot of, a lot of actual, like not even all that intensely serious about it, NBA fans, uh, that do get it. And everyone else kind of floats around and, and, and figures it out when they need to. And I, I just feel like that could be the draft in baseball if, uh, if it were a bigger thing, but it's not. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, it doesn't yeah. have to be that big of a thing. Yeah. I, the other thing I would say quickly, um, just yes, further thoughts. I think this, this gets played up every year and I think it's true. I'm not saying it's, it's untrue. Um, but for our listeners, I think they will have heard this before. So we're not going to be breaking new ground, but you know, you do one of the things you do see in the, in the baseball draft is you do see players in the first round from schools that aren't necessarily the power schools. And, and you see that with Colton Cowser going fifth, you see it a little bit later with Sam Bachman going in the top 10 from Miami of Ohio. Trey Sweeney of Eastern Illinois going 20 to the Yankees. And those are all a little bit different stories. Kowser might not have had super intense recruiting attention coming out of high school, but like 10 minutes after he got to San Houston, it was like, oh, actually, this guy's really, this, this guy's going to be good. You know, he was on Team USA after his freshman year. So like people caught on fairly quickly with him, but it's a little bit different with Bachman and Sweeney. And even Sweeney, it felt like, you know, I saw him last year in the Coastal Plain League and you know, he played really well out there and was getting some attention, but, you know, he really built on that late. I mean, he's really a guy who over the last year has built himself into a first round draft pick. And so stories like that, not just the fact that he's coming from Eastern Illinois, but the fact that, you know, he's a guy who really started his career rather, rather anonymously and then just kind of became what he became is a cool story that happens in the MLB draft that doesn't just doesn't happen to quite the same degree in the other major sports. Yeah, I mean, and you can throw uh, Sal Freilich into that. Like, yeah, he played in the ACC, but that's a guy who was very lightly recruited out of high school, partially because he was like a three-sport guy and he gets to BC to play baseball and kind of takes off. Um, some somewhat limited visibility on that because his freshman year ended a little early, like a month early, he got hurt, ended the year. Uh, for, for him, and then obviously pandemic shorted 20, shortened 2020, and then, you know, he did have a full season this year, but the, the fact it was as interrupted as it was, uh, those, those first two seasons, I, I think, hurt his uh, overall, like, visibility there. The, the, the first round, though, from a larger standpoint, I feel like didn't provide ton of surprises in terms of who got picked as first rounders Ty Madden falling to 32 and technically out of the first round uh into the sandwich round was a little surprising uh but it was uh I, th I think by and large the the players that, that got picked in the first round were were probably the players to uh to be expected and 
some of the high school players that that's not as true for, but at least from a, from a collegiate side that, that largely was. And uh, so as it now stands coming out of the draft uh, in terms of recruiting the, the classes for Florida and Vanderbilt look like they're probably going to be tied for the most players from the BA 500 to make it to campus. That of course includes all draft eligible players. It's not just high school players. They both look like they're going to get nine. Vanderbilt might get a surprise here or there, plus or minus one. It's possible. Uh, but my, my projection is nine for both of them. UCLA looks like they're going to have the most top 100 players. They look like they're on track for three, I believe it is. And uh, Arkansas is going to have the highest rated high schooler to make it to campus in infielder Peyton Stovall. He's a shortstop from Louisiana. And I think those four teams now are the four teams vying for the number one recruiting class when I rank them for a final time here uh, at the start of September. Florida signed the number one class in November, uh, but it could be any one of those four, I think. Um, when uh, when it's all said and done, and if it is UCLA, that is that would be the first time since 2010 a Pac Pac 12 back then it was the Pac 10, uh, but a Pac school would would have the number one recruiting class. So that would be rather significant if it does end up uh, with UCLA, and I think Arkansas has never had a number one class. Um, Florida and Vanderbilt, of course, this is old hat. If uh, if they end up as the number one. Uh, recruiting class but no matter how those four teams get ranked those those four schools are bringing in uh very impressive newcomer groups this year yeah and they're i think they kind of filter in a little bit differently too you know ucla it's a team you and i have talked about this offseason quite a bit of not really being 100 percent sure what to expect from them last year i mean you, you you can really kind of interpret it just about any way you'd like especially now that they have this kind of recruiting class coming in they've had other really good recruiting classes before. I'm thinking specifically of the class that had, you know, Talia and, and Kreidler, um, Strumpf, that, that whole group, that was a class that clearly was talented from the moment they got to campus, but didn't quite put it together until a couple of years later. I feel like the class before that, the big class, like the UCLA tends to go in kind of these like cycles with these groups. Um, so, you know, who knows how that lands because they also are going to be replacing a lot, you know, the, basically the entire, projected rotation. I know it didn't quite work out that way during the year, but uh, the entire projected rotation, a lot of key pieces in the lineup, Matt McLean and Noah Cardenas behind the plate, JT Schwartz at first. So what does that look like is an open question. Arkansas is a little different where, you know, they really, you mentioned they, they came through really well, just not with a guy like Peyton Stovall, but, you know, key pieces like, you know, Jalen Battles back and Brady Slavin's back, you know, and that's going to, you know, mean the lineup with, with those guys plus Robert Moore, you know, that was a team we came into the offseason kind of not knowing what they would exactly look like. And I think this has been one of the better, one of the more optimistic interpretations of what we could have expected here. So they're in a situation where now these pieces they're bringing in are kind of just filtering in in spots here and there, as opposed to those guys necessarily, as might be the case with UCLA, those guys aren't necessarily going to have to do the heavy lifting right away, even if they will be capable of it. And I think sometimes that's where the difference can be made where, you know, if you're just kind of filling in little spots in these, these newcomers can kind of just play roles as opposed to, 
having to have a lot on their shoulders right away. That's where the difference can be of, of you being a, a talented team that's a little bit enigmatic and, and pretty good to being a team that's that's great um, is having some of those veteran pieces around those younger guys. So the thing about Arkansas, let's diverge to, to Arkansas here for, for a minute. They have an infield coming back next year um, that is probably going to be something like Brady Slavens at first base, Robert Moore at second base, Jalen Battles at shortstop, and then they're going to have to pick a third baseman between Caden Wallace and Peyton Stovall. Um, genuinely not really sure how that'll land. The other one will play in the outfield. The Or I guess DH plausibly, since Matt Goodhart just signed as a free agent. That is going to lead to a whole lot of offense. Like... There, there is going to be no concern about how good Arkansas can be offensively or, frankly, defensively there on the infield. I'm just as excited to watch those guys defend as I am hit. But this is also a team that just lost Cops and Wicklander, top two pitchers, several other pitchers off of the staff. This is kind of a theme in, uh, in the SEC, at least in the SEC West. LSU also has a lineup that can absolutely mash. They lost Marceau uh, from the front of their rotation. I mean, they still have several other guys. They aren't quite as, they didn't lose quite as many innings as Arkansas did, but they don't necessarily have the frontline guys with Marceau and also Jaden Hill gone. Not that Jaden Hill pitched a ton this year, but if they had surprisingly gotten him back, like that's a guy you could pencil into to a Friday night spot, like they, intended to this year uh and Ole Miss losing Hoagland and Nikhazy and Broadway uh you know three of its top pitchers two All-Americans in that group and Hoagland would have been if he had stayed healthy um for a little bit longer this year so those guys all gone but they bring back the entire lineup if they want to I don't really know I, I guess we can broaden that beyond Arkansas Joe like of those teams is there a pitching situation you feel better about, or do you want, if you want to zero in on the hogs, like who pitches for the hogs in 2022? Uh, boy. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough one on all accounts. I mean, if you're Arkansas, you're really hoping you're really betting hard on Peyton Paulette, right? Like, I mean, I know in the 2022 mock draft, Carlos just put out, he's got Peyton Paulette as a top 10 pick and the stuff is there for it to be that. Right. But we saw the inconsistencies this year. And then um, he ended the season injured. Like correct. I thought that was a little rich right now, just given what, I mean, Paulette hasn't been a starter for a full season. He was up and down as a starter when he did start this year. Like you're right. The stuff's there. It could happen for him, but I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what, that's the bet you're really making, you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, Wes Johnson and David Horn would tell us, well, that's not quite, you know, they, they would obviously stump for the Matt other guys. House. And right, yes, Matt Johnson is, yes, uh, is now trying, a big league trying to get his coach. twins a yes. little, little better here. Yes, now a big league <laughs> pitching coach. Matt Hobbs, thank you. Yes. Um, you know, those guys would probably say um, they, they've got more there, and that's true. But, like, really, when we're talking guys that have been ha, have proven a little bit to us and really have the stuff, I mean, that's the guy who could change the entire complexion of what we're talking about with when it comes to Arkansas. LSU's a weird – I mean, they've got, they've got a couple nice pieces, veteran pieces coming back, you know um, – you know, I saw that Fontenot coming back in the bullpen. Um, Mikhail Hilliard has done some nice things. You know, he pitched pretty well in the Super Regional. Um, 
those are both veteran guys who have, who have been around the block. It's just that, and I've been guilty of this in the past. And I'm trying to kind of reprogram myself a little bit is the, the trouble is it can be easy to get a little bit overexcited over those kind of steady veterans who are returning when what you really kind of need is someone who has some star power and star quality and can really be a, a real dude. And sometimes those guys can develop over time, but oftentimes, you know, let me look at Kevin Copps, right? I mean, that's the obvious, the, the biggest example we've ever seen in college baseball, perhaps. But um, so I try not to get a little bit overheated about some of those veteran guys coming back. But that being said, I mean, that that does maybe suggest that there, there'll be some 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 depth there and, and be a situation where, you know, LSU has a couple guys they know they can can lean on. But I mean, your, your larger point is is right. That That's going to be a, a big question throughout the, the SEC. I mean, obviously there are some lesser examples. I mean, you know, Tennessee, Chad Dallas and Sean Hundley are gone, you know, uh, so we could play this game probably all day with these guys. And that's, Redmond Walsh. And Redmond Walsh. Yeah. Um, but that's life in the SEC, right? I mean, you're, you, you're going to, every year you're going to have guys good enough to begin pro careers. So that's just kind of the price you pay and, and what you have to do in, in, in the SEC. So yeah, I, uh, I think what's different though about Tennessee is that they're replacing basically the whole team. Sure. Like yeah, in, for sure. in the West, you've got these three teams uh, in particular that return the bulk, if not the entirety of their lineup, uh, but have completely new pitching staffs, which just is going to make for a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Cause I mean, you could play, I mean, Vanderbilt rocker, lighter, Murphy, you know, but, but right. Yeah. So just having these, these really good lineups and, and not having the, the pitching. I mean, I think the good news with, you know, if it is good news, you know, th- those three teams, frankly, were kind of in that position to a large degree this year, right? I mean, Arkansas at the end was running on fumes on their pitching staff for a lot of different reasons and couldn't quite get it done in Omaha. Ole Miss was kind of in the same, I mean, they had Doug Nikhazy that really, really was helpful. And they, they found some guys along the way, but that was an offense first outfit. And, you know, LSU was kind of, I mean, put against behind the eight ball early on with, with Hill's injury and Marceau became a real guy for them. But by the time they got to a super regional, he was basically gassed and they were trying to piece it together. So, I mean, if you're uh, willing to say that, well, you know, at least this is kind of the way they've had to win games recently. I mean, I guess it'll at least be a familiar feeling, but I am, <laughs> I'm sure all three will be looking to find a little bit more pitching before we flip the calendar to February. Yeah. And obviously guys will emerge. Um, they all recruit well. So there are, talented arms to, to put it together. You know, LSU, for instance, like Ty Floyd didn't have an amazing freshman year, but he came in as a top 100 player in his draft class. So yeah, uh, Michael Helmers he, was good for them. Like, he's yeah, a, he's yeah. Guy. And so as, as those guys develop, you know, so too does, does the pitching staff. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but uh, it's, it's just an interesting dynamic in, in some of these SEC teams. And you mentioned Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt also fits it because, uh, they plausibly could return most of the lineup. Like they have a couple guys that have to make decisions here. Uh, Dominic Keegan got drafted in like the 19th round, and that's going to be an interesting one uh, to to watch. I'm not not sure which way he's leaning. Like he certainly could come back and try and help himself, or maybe the Yankees will pay him enough that that he'll go. Um, Isaiah Thomas did not get drafted. And presumably he will not sign for a non-drafted free agent contract, which gets capped at 20,000. So presumably he's back and, um, you know, Jason Gonzalez is going to be gone, but, you know, so they could have, and CJ Rodriguez is gone as well from behind the plate. 
but I mean, they could have seven guys back from, from their lineup, but also be missing the best one, two punch in the country uh, and their closer. I mean, they, they have plenty back on the mound in little Maldonado, McIlvain, those kinds of guys, but Riley, um, but it is, uh, it's an interesting, interesting thing happening throughout the SEC potentially with, uh, with some more experienced offenses and less experienced pitching staffs at, uh, at several places. And and what then does, uh, does that mean for, for various teams going into next year? And, uh, that's something we'll uh, we'll certainly be trying to figure out soon for our uh, for our early top twenty five for the twenty twenty two season, but also throughout the uh, the rest of this off season. Cleaning something up earlier, Will Helmers, not Michael Helmers. Apparently, names just aren't going to be my thing today. Um, so shout out to uh, Wes Johnson, I guess. <laughs> uh, just not not going to be my my day for names. But yes, Will Helmers, LSU pitcher, not Michael. I don't know who Michael Helmers is. There's probably someone named Michael Helmers, but it was not. The guy I was thinking of. That he's would be he's not pitching Helmer. for LSU. No, probably not. So, yeah, that's uh, my, my apologies to Will Helmers and uh, family. Alrighty. Well, we're going to uh, leave the draft talk behind here, uh, or uh, step away from the draft talk. Excuse me for for a moment, um, and we'll uh, we'll get into some of the winners and losers uh, from a college standpoint in this draft class here in a second. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, after the draft completed on Tuesday, I wrote up a quick list of winners and losers from the draft from a, from a college perspective. Really all I'm doing, I do this every year, I'm looking at who, it, it, it's really a, a matter of who brought in who did well at keeping their players or recruits uh, and who lost more than expected or just a lot. Uh, even if it's what we expected them to lose, if it sometimes just the mass at some point becomes significant. So on the winner's list, uh, I included Arkansas. Arkansas, like I mentioned, landed Payne Stovall, who will be the highest ranked player uh, to make it to campus in all likelihood, barring any surprise from a, from a drafted player. Stovall will be the highest ranked player to make it to campus from this prep class. Uh, and like I said, Arkansas is in the mix for the number one overall class after signing. I believe they were number eight on signing day. So good class to begin with. They held on to a lot of it and got Jalen Battles back. That's, uh, that's a pretty good week for Arkansas. Duke is bringing its entire recruiting class to campus. They didn't lose anyone. That includes uh, Alex Mooney, uh, Michigan prep shortstop, who was a top 100 player in the draft class. I have a feeling this is going to be Duke's highest rated recruiting class in program history. We'll see how that shakes out. It was number 24 on signing day. I'm sure that's going up. Georgia, which uh, held on to its recruiting class by and large and gets Jonathan Cannon back. Um, Cannon was a draft eligible second year player who had an up and down season in part because he started the year battling mono. Um, so with a more normal off season and we'll see what he can do, but he's a guy you can pencil in on Friday nights. And, and so that's exciting, uh, for, for the dogs. Um, you know, so those are, 
those are three of them. UCLA, uh, just it, it, it just kept coming out before the draft. UCLA recruits pulling out of the draft, setting really high numbers. Ultimately, they only lost one player from their draft or from their recruiting class. They were fourth or third right after signing day. They uh, they now very well could be the number one class. We'll, we'll see how it shakes out. They did have 10 players off of their current team drafted. Uh, and that's a lot. That was the most in the country. But really no one there was anyone we didn't expect. But the reason why I have UCLA among the winners is this uh, is this recruiting class, which you know really could be, uh, should be the core of UCLA for the next, uh, the next few seasons. And, you know, it, losing the, the, having the most players drafted is a double-edged sword. It, it is a nice uh, feather in your, your hat to point to. Um, it does mean you have a lot of volume to replace, but uh, there is something to be said just for the, the pure uh, look of being able to say we had the most players drafted. And then uh, the last winner I had was Oregon State. Uh, they also pretty much hung on to their entire recruiting class. Just one player was drafted. Uh, Dominic Hambly went in the 18th round of the Cubs. Otherwise, they all come back, as does Will Frisch, Jake Fennings, and Troy Clonch, uh, three pretty good players from, from their current team. So those were the, the programs I identified, Joe, as, uh, as the winners. Yeah, all, all good inclusions, I thought. You know, we talked a little bit about UCLA and, and Arkansas. You know, I think Oregon State is interesting to me because it kind of what I talked about earlier, it, it's kind of a combination of sure we got, you know, we got some some intriguing newcomers that made it through the draft that maybe are going to be impact players right away, but also we hung on to some of our guys. And, and so two two pretty good arms and Frisch and Finnegs, and then Troy Clonch at, at an important position at catcher, um, being able to, to have him stick around. I think that's huge. So you, I, for the for the ones that I think can really be big time winners when it's all said and done. And we do this, when we look back at the end of next season, I think situations like that are the ones that, that really stand out to me is, is what are you, what are you holding on to as well as what do you, what do you bring in? And that's, that's kind of the difference we talked about. Whereas with UCLA, it feels like it could go either way. We can use a last year example, right? Miami number one recruiting class had a similar deal with UCLA where they had a lot of talented guys, uh, you know, come into the program and ultimately it, it ended up, a lot of those guys having big roles, but it was kind of inconsistent and they were a a two seed in a regional and kind of got eliminated pretty quickly. And so it amounted to, you know, a good, but not great season. So we'll have to see what ends up being with UCLA, but, but I'm intrigued by Oregon state for a number of reasons. One is that combination of things, but also, you know, this will be a conversation for, for later in the weeks to come, but, you know, I think the PAC 12, could be a little bit down next year. And so I think there's a real opportunity for Oregon state to, to make a move and in advance on this year or this past year when they were, um, when I think they were uh, an improved squad that, you know, perhaps snuck up on people like myself included, who was underrating them a little bit coming into the season. Yeah. Very interested in that. I, and I think that's a good point about Oregon state that they, they add this really good group to what should already be a good returning group good group of newcomers, good, good core of returning players. Um, you know, you look at the guys that they're losing off of this year's team. Kevin Abel was drafted. Um, not the easiest thing to replace a guy like that. Jake Mulholland um, and Andy Armstrong uh, graduated. 
those are two, you know, really consistent players throughout the course of their careers and losing a closer and a shortstop is, is always difficult, especially when they're as talented as those two. So it's not like UCLA or uh, sorry, Oregon state doesn't have important pieces to replace, but they just, they're just bringing back an awful lot. And now we're adding what is, what's definitely their best recruiting class since they brought in Rutschman and what is might be rated as their highest recruiting class since at least Madrigal and uh, Grenier. We know how those classes turned out. I'm not suggesting Oregon State's going to go like win the World Series within the next three years, but you know there was a lot of there was a lot of wondering when Oregon State hired Mitch Canham instead of hiring Pat Bailey or Nate Yeski to replace Pat Casey about, well, yeah, Mitch Canham has a lot of things going for him. He, you know, he's an alum. He knows what it takes to win at Oregon State. He was a wet, really well-regarded minor league manager, but he has no college coaching experience. So like, how is that going to go? Who's doing, who's going to pick up the recruiting because Yeski's gone now. And that was so important. And Pat Bailey and Pat Casey knew what they were looking for. So, well, they, they knew their kind of player. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm here to tell you that this is the next great Oregon state recruiting class probably. And if they're, if they're brought along well, and I'm sure they will be, they do a good job in Corvallis, obviously, uh, good things are probably going to follow here for the Beavers and over the next few years. So I'm very excited to see where that goes and how Oregon State now builds off of this class, um, both in terms of development, player development on campus and on the recruiting trail. How do you follow this up? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's one of the the, the beauties now of, of of this process is we. We kind of get to see how it, it plays out and we can, you know, armchair quarterback it the whole way. But, um, you know, Oregon State's a program that's it's, it's kind of seems like given all that's changed there, it seems like a program that that, that national title in 2018 seems like 10 years ago in some ways. And so um, it, it seems like they've kind of been in the in the wilderness a little bit. That's just not fair, you know, but they have had a lot happen. There was the, you know, Pat Casey retiring in the interim year with Pat Bailey and then the kind of some of the dramatics over whether it would be Pat Bailey full time or whether they were just going to bring, you know, keep Nate Yeski around and make him the head coach and they bring in Canham instead. And there's just a lot happening in that program, but through all that, it, it does seem like they are on a good path right now. Um, and, and obviously we'll see where they build from here. All right. I also, if we're labeling winners, we got to label some losers uh, listed Arizona state. This is actually Arizona state's second straight year on this list. Um, this one's a little tricky. Uh, ASU lost the best players from its recruiting class, and it's always hard to hold things together after a coaching staff change. Um, but I'm also not, then they, they saw five players drafted from their current roster. Four of them were in the final 10 rounds though. And you never quite know how all of that's going to shake out until contracts get signed. So we'll see Arizona state on paper doesn't look great right now in terms of how the, the, the week went for them, but it's possible it'll end up better than, uh, than it looks right now. If, uh, you know, Eric Tolman, Justin Fall, Cooper Benson, and Tyler Thornton were all drafted in the final 10 rounds, they're all pitchers. They all struggled with 
injuries or inconsistent performance this season to an extent. If they even get two of those guys back, though, I'd probably view this draft a little bit better than I'm viewing it right now. Uh, UConn, which uh, was, unfortunately for them, they had two player, two recruits ranked in the top 500 in the BA 500. They lost them both. Frank Masakato went um, seventh overall to uh, to the Royals. That's not they were six months ago. Masakato probably seemed like he was going to make it to stores. Within the last couple months, that became it became clear he was probably not going to. And then when he got taken seventh overall, that was like, well, he's definitely not coming now. Um, Owen Kellington, Vermont prep right-hander, ranked around 300. Um, he, even on draft day, you might have said, like, well, you probably still get Kellington. Players from Vermont just don't get taken very often. Prep players from Vermont just don't get taken very often in the draft. And it so happened that the Padres went out and got him in the fourth round, or Pirates went out and got him in the fourth round. So, they're not going to get either one of those guys, which is uh, disappointing uh, for the Huskies. And also for me, uh, I would have been interested in seeing how they would have developed there. I mean, UConn has done a great job at developing pitching. They've had four pitchers drafted in the top five rounds over the last six years. So if they uh, if they could have gotten those, either one of those guys on campus would have been interested to see how that worked out for them. Oklahoma State uh, saw its recruiting class halved, basically. They signed 11 recruits in November. Five of those guys were drafted this week. Uh, most importantly, Rock, or most significantly, Rock Riggio uh, was drafted. He was the, the top guy in the class. He was drafted in the 11th round by the Brewers, uh, so he is probably not making it to Stillwater. And then Texas Tech, which saw its top three recruits drafted and also had nine players drafted off of its current roster. And while for the most part, it wasn't surprising that any of those guys went it, uh, this is just a case where it's a lot of volume. There's a lot of volume leaving Lubbock. You can add in a couple transfers uh, leaving Lubbock and it, there's just a lot to replace from Texas for Texas tech now. And it might not impact them next year. They've got really good returning talent next year, but this might be a thing that, catches up with them in 23 i maybe it'll catch up with them in 22 but uh we'll, we'll have to see yeah tech is interesting just quickly on on tech they are interesting because they're they're not at least not as of yet they're not playing a lot in the transfer portal and, and they've historically been a team that, that plays pretty well there and so that'll be interesting to see because it, it does feel like a little bit of a hard reset year for them when you talk about the, the guys they lost also micah dallas transferring to texas a&m their, their most consistent arm the last few years. So there's a, a little bit of turnover going on there. So that'll be fascinating to see, you know, Connecticut or with UConn with Jim Penders just, uh, just being too good at his job, I guess, is what we're getting at here. Just, you know, finding a guy like Mazzucato early and being on him and then he blows up in his senior year. And like, that's just the way the cookie crumbles in this business. You know, coaches are, are used to that kind of thing. I think he would probably say the same as disappointing as it was like, this is just the way it goes. Um, but that, that's the kind of stuff that has to keep coaches up at night a little bit is, yeah, you were, you were right. You were right. You were absolutely on the guy. And if, if he just, if this development happens when he's on your campus next year, as opposed to this year, it's a whole different situation. Right. So, um, this is, you know, it's the way it goes, Arizona state. You're right. I mean, it's, 
you know, uh, it could go either way. You know, if, if, if some subset of those pitchers return, uh, you feel like they're in pretty decent shape because you could make the argument now those, those four guys are their probably four most important pitchers and would have been their four most important pitchers probably last year had they all been healthy and available to them. Uh, famously, they, they were, as you mentioned, mostly hurt. So that, that's going to have, a, I think, a lot of bearing on what Arizona State looks like next year under Willie Bloomquist. Um, because I don't, I don't think there's a ton of question about uh, their offense has had some attrition. Jack Moss transferred to Texas A&M. Drew Swift was a nice offensive player. So there are some questions there, but uh, they're starting from a pretty good place offensively. The pitching side is going to be more of a question. And if you get these guys back, certainly if you got all of them back, um, but even some subset of them would give you at least a start in the right direction to building a quality pitching staff. Um, but it's just going to be, it's going to be tough if those guys sign or if three of the four sign, especially when you're, you're not just starting over from a pitching staff standpoint, but also after initially thinking he was going to stick around Jason Kelly, the pitching coach who did such a good job with that group in 2021 is going to LSU. So um, a little bit of a potential reset button situation on the pitching staff for Arizona state and for a team that was going to have more questions on that side of the ball as it is. That's just not exactly where they would want to be. Yeah. It's uh it's iffy, you know, it, it, it could work out. It, it might not. We'll, we'll just have to see where, where that one goes. Oklahoma state is an interesting one because while they've really, really hit hard in their recruiting class, they've also hit the transfer portal really hard. So I, maybe they realized this was coming, um, but they, uh, they're, they're going to have probably just as many transfers in next year as they you know, newcomers among among transfers as they do among junior college players or um or, or true freshmen so that that's just an interesting thing to watch and with the you know the rules changed where you now don't have to to sit um you know just is, is that a potential avenue i'm sure it'll be a potential avenue that's explored oklahoma state now looks like they're going to be the first high profile team to, to really explore it uh, next season. And, and we'll, we'll see how that goes for them. Yeah, they, they are, they're, they're in a, a group there. Texas A&M is another that's really playing in that sandbox, but with Oklahoma state, you've got a couple really good, really talented relievers, Griffin Dorshing from Northern Kentucky, a big, a big bopper who's going to fit in uh, quite well. I think at Oklahoma state, a, a program that is not shy about having guys who, uh, really grip it and rip it at the plate. And then the big name, of course, is Victor Medeiros. Um, interestingly, one of those players who made it to Miami last season um, from that top ranked recruiting class and just an up and down season for him. But, you know, uh, he's going to be working with Rob Walton um, at Oklahoma State, one of the best in the game on the pitching side. So it'll be interesting to see what, what he develops into. But the stuff is is plenty good. And, and so Oklahoma State is, is, you're right, going to be one of the first real uh, science experiments we're going to have in terms of building a team uh, in a lot of key spots from the transfer portal. All right. Well, Joe, unless you have more draft observations, I think, uh, I think I'm ready to put the 2021 draft to bed. We'll, we'll start working on the 2022 draft cycle. Carlos Colazzo and Ben Bather, as we record this, are already out there looking at uh, 2022 high school players at Perfect Game National Showcase. I'm headed to the Cape pretty soon to start work on that so we're uh we're already rolling here on the, on the 2022 cycle it it never really stops of course yeah let's um 
ready. I, I am also ready to move on. I'm going to physically turn a page by a microphone. Are you ready? Let's see if the <laughs> listeners, this is going to be like a, what is that? What do they call it? ASMR, you know, where yes. it's like this. Yeah. Yes. So it's just going to be a little ASMR page turning here. Here we go. Hang on. There you go. Did you get it? Yeah. I nice. Heard. All right. Yeah. That, that was me turning the page to 2022. All right. Uh, so we're going to move on here to talk about um, some of the coaching changes from this cycle, specifically here. It now feels like it was a while ago because it was, but because of our recording cycle in the draft, we, we haven't addressed it here. Arizona hired Chip Hale to succeed Jay Johnson. Chip Hale is a former star at Arizona who was a part of their 1986 national championship team. And he went on, has gone on to um, make a career as a, as a, in, in pro ball. He's coached in the big leagues for a really long time. He was the D backs manager for two seasons about six years ago. Um, he has no college coaching experience though. And Joe, you, uh, you said, that this hire reminded you of another recent uh, recent hire around the, the college baseball world. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Eric Wedge getting hired at Wichita State a few years Former back. Former podcast guest. Yeah, that's right, Eric Wedge, friend of the podcast. It's similar in, in a number of ways. One is that it is a famous program alum, you know, a former big league player, also a former big league manager. And, you know, Eric Wedge was really groundbreaking in that regard. I forget how, how far back it went, but it had been a long time since someone with big league managing experience had become a college head coach. And so he was really breaking ground there. And early returns on that are pretty positive. This Wichita State team this season, certainly the 2020 team got off to a really hot start. 2021, they were improved, didn't quite get where they probably would have wanted, but was definitely better. So Chip Hale is kind of similar in that regard in that, that no real college experience to speak of except as a player, but had a lot of success, clearly has an affinity for the program, um, and obviously has that high-level coaching experience, and you can, you can sell that, you know, playing for a former big league manager that I would say the difference is, and I don't know if I would put this as a checkmark, you know, as, as a positive for, for one or both or either, like I'm not really sure how to interpret this, but the one difference is that in Wedge, Wichita State was really trying to recapture some magic from a bygone era that most likely is not, actually almost certainly is not returning. And it's not even certain that even the big picture goal of returning to Omaha is, it's certainly on the table, but it's not something I think most people would bet on at that program, given the challenges of coaching at that school in 2021 and beyond. Not the case at Arizona, right? I mean, Arizona is a program that it's a little bit of a weird history. They're, they're a little more inconsistent than you would think for a team that's won as many national titles and been to Omaha as many times as they have. But that's a team that has Omaha expectations. They've won a number of national titles. Every, they've been consistent in every era of their history as a winner. So they're really not necessarily looking to recapture anything. But this is a little bit of a break from that tradition in that Arizona had not really hired internally. The last two coaches, Jay Johnson and Andy Lopez, were not – from Arizona. They had not played or coached Arizona. They were not from the state. Jay Johnson was, you know, from California and had coached at Nevada. And Andy Lopez had been at Florida, most recent before going to Arizona, but had also coached at Pepperdine. So this is a little bit of a break from, from that, but it is a return to someone from within the 
Arizona family, which has also been, as we'll get into here, kind of a trend of college coaching hiring this offseason more generally. Yeah, before we get into that, I mean, I think that Hale can work. Wedge is working. Um, you know, Wichita State didn't make the tournament this year, but they're improved. And, you know, Hale is a guy that has been around baseball at a really high level for a really long time. He has hired already, you know, today it was it broke that he's hired Trip Couch to be his uh, to be one of his assistant coaches. Trip Couch is a really experienced college baseball guy recruited at a high level at programs around the country. Um, like I, I think they're they're in a position to help Chip Hale succeed and when he gets players there, he'll help them get better. And so I, I, I think that this can work if, um, you know, despite not having college coaching experience, it's uh, it's a strange move in some respects, just because he left a job on the Tigers big league staff to, to take this job that happened twice this year to the Tigers. Jose Cruz jr. Went from the Tigers coaching staff to rice it previously hadn't happened since like 1979 when Dick Hauser went back to Florida state from the Yankees for a season, and then went back to the Yankees and Mike Marin got the job. So it's unusual that these guys are, are making those moves, but I, I think Hale, I, I really like the fact that he's been a manager before. I, I think that's different from just being on a big league staff for obvious reasons. And he's an alum and you know, they're, They've done under over the last few years, Arizona's done a lot of fundraising stuff to get the program in a good position. They built that hitting facility out there and um, that you can see when you watch games on TV. And uh, a lot of guys are really engaged in making Arizona a, a good place. And Jay Johnson left it in a good spot. So I, I think that they can hit the ground running at Arizona. But it is it is part of a, a broader trend here in this uh, in this offseason already. You you've seen Hale, Jose Cruz Jr. get hired from big league staffs. Willie Bloomquist got hired at Arizona State without any college coaching experience. He'd spent the last six years um, working for the Diamondbacks front office, I believe, as a special assistant to the general manager. Um, Lance Berkman was hired at Houston Baptist without college experience, except for like the one fall he spent as a student assistant at Rice. He does have high school coaching experience though. Um, and that's not, that's not for nothing. That, that, that definitely helps, um, especially with recruiting. Frank Catalanato was hired by Hofstra. He previously had been the head coach at New York Tech uh, New York Tech like suspended athletics for two years because of COVID stuff, budget budgetary stuff. So he was out this last season, but he's he has been a uh, a college head coach before. But that's another former big leaguer brought in uh, this year. Joe, am I missing anyone? I think those are the, yeah, those are the ones. Um, yeah, which, so you know, I, more than normal. <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot. It's been a lot, and um, it, it's it's just been interesting to see all these schools go in this direction we've seen it in some other sports but but we hadn't really seen it in baseball and you know these are some 
premium jobs that these guys are getting. If you look at Arizona, Arizona State, uh, you know, depending on your view of Rice, I suppose, but historically, that's a very uh, strong baseball program. And if you wind it back just a little bit, I mean, we talked about Canem at Oregon State. Uh, we talked about Wedge at Wichita State. And uh, it, it's uh, it's never not been a thing that, that you might be interested in hiring a famous alum. Uh, Darren Erstad at Nebraska, Tony Gwynn at San Diego State, et cetera. But it, it does feel like the the trend has accelerated here over at least in, in this last year, but over the last couple of cycles, maybe. For sure. I think there's with this particular group, I think there are a few things at play. This is fascinating. Like you and I could probably do several hours of show just, just based on this. But I think in some of the hires this year, not all, but in some of the hires, I think there are reasons that, that they were made. I think in the case of, of Rice with Jose Cruz Jr., I think in addition to, to not winning enough at Rice, ultimately they moved on from Braga, I think in part because he was ultimately just seen as too much of an outsider. Like, and, and those were certainly things that were hamstringing him. I think that's fair. Um, but also just, you know, he didn't, he felt like it's kind of an odd fit from the beginning, as much winning as he had done at Tennessee tech. And as much as we all enjoyed that 2018 team, it just seemed like an odd fit from the start. And that I think was always going to be working against him. So Jose Cruz jr. Is kind of natural salve for that. Now there were other guys in the mix at rice that they didn't necessarily have to go that direction, but I think because they went that direction, that is kind of an easy way to, kind of sell it a little bit is like, look, he's one of us. And there's no doubting that he loves Rice University and wants the best for the school. Clearly that school has been good to his family. So I, I so I get that. I, I think it's kind of a similar thing, less so perhaps, but a little bit of Arizona State where again, not enough winning for Tracy Smith, but I think there was always a feeling there that it was just like an, an odd fit. And then Tracy wasn't from the region and wasn't um, you know, he recruited a lot of guys from out of the region, especially early on when he got there. He's also kind of an, an aloof person sometimes. And is you know, some people are, are charmed by it and others, I guess, not so much. And so, you know, I think that too played a role there with him. And so in bringing in Willie Bloomquist, I think, again, you're bringing in someone who's from the family, from the program, you know, people are comfortable with him. Like he can do all the stuff where he tells you how much the school is meant to him and you understand what he's what he's saying. Now that doesn't say whether or not those guys are going to be successful in those roles. But I think when you're coming from a hire that felt like a square peg in a round hole, I think those are easy hires to sell in hindsight. Um, what I would say also, I, not speaking necessarily to Rice and Rice is tough because they're a private school and they're not a power five school, although they are a premium baseball job. It's, it's a little complicated there, but with Bloomquist and Hale, we talked about this offline is that you look at those two hires and Arizona and Arizona state are two of the premier jobs in the PAC 12. You, you throw them in there with UCLA and, you know, depending on how you feel about USC, if you just want to see USC as, as a different deal now, then totally get it. But those three, I think right now are have to be seen as the premium jobs in the PAC 12. And you compare them to LSU and AM that also opened in this cycle. And I think everyone under inherently understands some of the differences and where the SEC and PAC 12 is in terms of, facilities and money and support and, and all of those different things that play into that that we've talked about a million times. But I think you really saw it clarified in these hires where, you know, the SEC openings and they got LSU, Jay Johnson and Jim Schlossnagel at Texas A&M, two proven college head coaches with good track records, a very lengthy track record in, in Schloss's case. And in Jay Johnson's, 
less lengthy, but still has you know a lot of history there of winning. And then those guys very quickly hired college-centric staffs with again long track records of winning. And so you saw that happen very quickly over a short period of time, and it was decisive. And they're off and running. And then Arizona State and Arizona went in a different direction. And you know Trip Couch coming over to to coach at Arizona um, with Chip Hale, I think is a is a really good hire. I think even Dave Lawn. I think some perhaps people got a little bit down on Dave Lawn when when Yeski came in and you know kind of took over the pitching at Arizona. But you know that's a guy who helped Arizona to one game of a national title as a pitching coach. Like you know, guy's been in this game a long time. He's got experience in college. So that's kind of an inspired staff. You know, Arizona State's has gone a little bit different direction, um, and that's not to say those things can't work. I, I want people to hear me clearly that I'm not saying that doesn't mean those things can work, but I, I do think it shows you the difference in the way SEC and a league like the Pac-12 work in baseball, it's just different. Um, you talk about the coaching salaries, you talk about the coaches that are being attracted to these jobs, um, the staffs that they're hiring. And some of that is because salary pool money. Um, there are a lot of things that play into that, but we talk about why is the SEC the best conference in college baseball when it used to be the Pac-12 and that is no longer the case anymore. There are a million different reasons for that, but I think you, it was all right out there on front street by what we saw with what happened in this coaching cycle. And again, one more time, not saying that Arizona, Arizona State, those hires don't work, but they are outside the box. Let's make no mistake about it. They are outside of the box hires in college baseball. And, you know, LSU and Texas A&M had the luxury of not necessarily having to go outside the box because of the advantages there for it. Yeah, I mean... Jay Johnson signed a five-year, $6.5 million deal at LSU. And you can say, okay, LSU is like either the best or the second best job in the sport. Fine. That's cool. Jim Schlossnagel signed a $1.25 million contract, like annually. I, I don't remember how many years it was for. Uh, at AM, Tony Vitello just got a $1.5 million extension annually. Chris Lamonis is in line for an extension and a significant raise following the national championship. Meanwhile, like on the Pac-12, uh, John Savage is over a million dollars. That's it. And he's the only one really close, I believe. It, it's just a different deal. And obviously money's not everything, but it's a lot of things <laughs> when we talk about this. Um, and I should say Pat Casey was close, uh, if not at a million dollars when he retired. So understandable that Mitch Canham would not be making that much money off the bat, but it's, uh, it's a different deal. I, I just can't imagine what happened at Arizona state really happening at an SEC school where you fire Tracy Smith and defensible or not that happened. Well, okay. What happens now? That search didn't go on very long. They just hired Willie Bloomquist, which was a pretty easy thing to do. He clearly wanted the job. He'd been been in the mix before. Um, I, I just can't imagine that happening at, at most other schools. Florida State wouldn't even do that when Mike Martin retired. Like, yeah, they wound up promoting Mike Martin Jr., but they went through a pretty protracted search before. Like, 11 retired at the end. Of, like, he announced that he was going to retire following the next season during the college world series of, of, of that year, they had a full year to make a hire and they took the full year before they promoted 
Mike Martin Jr. Like, did Arizona State take a week? I, you know, it, it's just a, it's a weird deal. And I, I think what's happening, Chip Hale feels different to me. Um, it, it also kind of fits what Arizona, like Arizona has made now head coaching hires in baseball, football, and men's basketball within the last seven months. Um, give or take, might be closer to eight now. I don't remember precisely when Jed Fish got hired, but Jed Fish got hired to coach their football team. Coming from the NFL, he had some college on his experience, but most recently he was the Patriots quarterbacks coach. Um, and, and so like they, they've shown that they are kind of outside the box thinking in their hires lately. Uh, but some of these other hires, uh, we'll see. We'll see how this group of of uh, pro guys coming into to college pans out. But I, I think you got to have the right assistant coaches, and that's another thing that, again, I think Arizona stands out already for for having done so. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that it would be easy for administrators to kind of look because one thing I started to say. Let me back up. One thing I started to say a minute ago was that one of the other things I think that is happening here is that Major League Baseball, or just say pro ball to to encompass the minor leagues, pro ball and college ball in the way players are developed and the way players are kind of cared for in that way are are converging a little bit, in part because of the college facilities boom and investment in technology and the way that pro baseball has embraced that as well. So a lot of the training resources that if you're a power five college player, you're getting are in some cases better than what you get in lower levels of the minor leagues. So you, that has converging a little bit. So you, I think there's a, a, some thought that, well, you know, that these two worlds are kind of converging a little bit to where now, you know, if you've worked in pro baseball, whether it's in scouting or in in a development role or, or whatever it is, like bringing some of that over that training and development piece to college is not necessarily an an odd fit in today's game. Whereas before you might go to the college game and realize, Oh, I don't have anything I need to do the things that I did when I was in pro ball. That is less and less the case as time goes on. What I would say though, is I think it is easy to your point for administrators to take that information and underrate how important the recruiting aspect still is in college baseball. It is the lifeblood. And I think there is, there are a lot of, people who are inclined to try to downplay recruiting because whether people think it's like, I don't even know the right word, but like, I think sometimes people try to downplay recruiting because they want to focus on the player development piece. And it, it feels like maybe that's the more soft touch to talk about player development as, as opposed to talking about recruiting. But let's be honest, like you're not going to win big without the recruiting piece. You can win pretty big with the recruiting piece and you're not really developing guys that well, as long as those guys start off as really talented. Right. So it's kind of tough to do it the other way though. So that's the part where the, the, the assistant coaching staff, especially if your head coach is not a recruiter and has not recruited, that's the part where the assistant coaches become really, really important because it in, especially in today's college baseball, like maybe there was a time where you could go beat the bushes and find some, you know, diamonds in the rough and some backfields and some dust, you know, some dust lots back in the seventies and eighties and, and find some guys. But now in 2021 college baseball, you've just got to be recruiting. Uh, to win at a really high level. And that's the piece that I think could get lost in this by focusing on a, a different set of, of skills in your coaching staff. Yeah. And I mean, these guys don't have to have, you know, you're, you're bringing talented, you're, you're, 
the talent that that has helped you succeed as a pro ball coach, it's not like that doesn't play on the recruiting trail. You know, being able to recognize talent is being able to recognize talent. Um, you might have to refine it a little bit because you're now looking at players who are in high school versus in you know out of high school. Um, but it is it is just a it's a skill and you've got to you've got to learn it and some guys will pick it up sooner than others and other guys won't and you know whatever uh but it's a it's it's a real thing and you only have two assistant coaches to lean on to to go out on the road for you whereas if you're bringing a football or basketball coach in from pro ball without the the recruiting experience they have a lot more assistance that can go out on the road and, you know, they're evaluating players at, at least in basketball, it feels like the evaluations are happening at an older age than they're happening in, uh, in baseball. So I just feel like the dynamic in baseball makes it, makes it harder, but you know, we'll, we'll see where these go. Uh, it's quite possible. All of them will be successful. None of them will be successful somewhere in the middle. It's probably where we'll land, but uh, certainly an interesting development that this is where some of the, the hiring trend has gone this season. All right, with that, we're going to wrap up this edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, as a reminder here, as we get into the offseason, we are going once a week. Um, we went later in the week uh, this week because of the, the draft. We wanted to be able to, to discuss that. Um, we may stick to that. We may not. Uh, well, we're, we're still trying to figure out what day works best for us in the offseason. Uh, so make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, and then it'll just pop right there into your phone and you don't have to worry about when we decide to, uh, to record next week's edition of, of the podcast. Uh, but we will be coming weekly throughout the off season. We're going to start getting our guests back on the podcast uh, every week. We really enjoy being able to, uh, to bring you people from around college baseball interviews from people around college baseball, excuse me. And we'll uh, we will get back to that soon probably not next week just given some travel stuff uh but very soon we'll uh, we'll get back to that so excited about that and again if you have ideas or guests you would like to hear from on the podcast please let us know and we'll uh we'll see we'll see what we can do about that you can follow us on twitter i'm at ted cahill joe is at joe healy ba there is plenty of content to read over on the website baseballamerica.com a lot about the draft. We mentioned my winners and losers draft from a college perspective. That's there now. A lot, lot to be found over at baseballamerica.com. Uh, and pretty soon there will be updated uh, Major League Baseball prospect rankings, team-by-team uh, -team rankings, and a top 100. All of that coming soon as we uh, are now able to add uh, drafted prospects to that. So look for that over at baseballamerica.com in the days and weeks to come. Uh, so until next time, I want to thank Rapsodo for sponsoring this edition and every edition of the Baseball America College podcast and 
late breaking here while we were podcasting, it came in that uh, Rapsodo is offering our listeners $500 off their hitting 2.0 and pitching 2.0 units from now until August 1st. So to get that deal, head over to rapsodo.com slash summersteel and use code BASTEEL to save $500 off all unit purchases. Again, that's rapsodo.com slash summersteel and use code BASTEEL, all one word. Thank you to Rapsodo. Thank you all for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.